Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter five as we continue our study of Matthew's gospel. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the word of our savior Jesus who spoke to his people, who speaks to us, the spirit who conveys these words and opens our minds and gives us understanding. We pray that indeed you would guide us into truth as we hear the voice of our savior today. We pray that you would deliver us from all error of misunderstanding, all error of doctrine or application. We pray that you would deliver us from every distraction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. One of the most popular television shows of the 1970s was about the 1950s. The sitcom Happy Days premiered in January of 1974, and it was carried along on a wave of 1950s nostalgia during the decade of the 70s that saw movies like American Graffiti, the extremely popular musical Grease, neither of which I commend to you, neither of which I'm saying go, go watch that. But this, there was this wave of 1950s nostalgia in the 70s, each taking baby boomers back to a time when they were young and full of life, free of debt, and free of care, back to the days before the worst part of the Vietnam War, back before Watergate, back before the malaise and the doldrums of the Jimmy Carter administration, presumably taking them back to when they were truly happy. Those were the happy days back then. Today are the sad days, today are the despair days, today are the days of depression and anxiety. But in reality, this show Happy Days left people longing for and remembering a time that never actually existed. The 1950s were not without their own worries and struggles. And I say this not because I lived through it, obviously, but because you, you read history and you can see, while it was a time of incredible prosperity, Arthur Fonzarelli, you know, the Fonz and Richie Cunningham, they never talk about the Cold War or the nuclear threat. No one worries about communists. The Korean War happened in the 1950s. The Vietnam War started at the, toward the middle and end of the 1950s. No one debates Brown versus Board of Education. Not only that, but I don't think anybody smokes. Nobody goes to church. It's a very different view of the 1950s than reality. Uh, we might say, well, it was meant to be funny and not serious, and so of course they wouldn't uh, include some of that stuff. And the show is fine for what it was, but the point is nostalgia works because it sells you a picture of the world that never was. And Americans couldn't get enough of it. The sitcom ran for 11 seasons so that the show about the 1950s lasted longer than the actual 1950s. <laughs> Since then, we've had a steady stream of commercial nostalgia with movies and other media continually repackaging our childhoods and selling them back to us over and over. And this, 
this receptivity to the nostalgic, it, it plays off our tendency to sugarcoat the past, to be easily provoked, to long for a time that we think was so much simpler, so much better, so much purer than the present. Now, I wanna stop and qualify what I'm saying. It is a good thing to look back at your life and to give thanks for all the ways that God has preserved you. It is a good thing to look back at your former days and thank God for being faithful to you, for giving you life and health for all of his providences and care. That's a good, commendable, praiseworthy thing. But it doesn't take very much for us to go from there and for us to be prompted to look back in a disordered way, to look back longingly and wistfully aching for a, a better time, to begin to cultivate regret for decisions that we've made. We feel remorse for paths that we took that got us to where we are today. To think about what it would be like to go back to a certain point and relive our life from that point forward. Boy, the decisions that we would make would be so different. The things that we would do, the places we would go, man, if we just had a do-over, we could get it right this time. And then we start to begin a lot of sentences with, if only. If only I hadn't moved there. If only I hadn't gone to that school. If only I hadn't taken that job or married that person. Then, then I could be really, really happy and healthy and whole as a human. I could really live a life pleasing to God if only. If only I could have lived in a different time. If only I were born a hundred years sooner. Or if I only had a different set of circumstances. Or, or if I were a totally different person, then... I could be genuinely happy. It doesn't take very much provocation for us to breed this kind of deep discontentment with our present circumstances. The book of Ecclesiastes has something to say about this. In Ecclesiastes chapter seven, Solomon says this, and listen to this very closely. Hear what Solomon says. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? for you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Solomon says it is not wise to dwell on the former days, to long for them, to say, boy, that was just such a better time than today. Because if God is maturing humanity, if God is growing us, if God is writing history, and if he's moving history forward in a way so that all of his good pleasure is accomplished, and it is, if the end is truly better than the beginning, as Solomon says, then it is folly to suggest that the former days were objectively better in every way than these days. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with a similarly bold announcement. Jesus says that because of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, these are the happy days. These are the good days. These are the blessed and joyful days. You are blessed and happy and joyful in this time. We might respond. We might object and say, oh, sure, I, I get what you're saying, Lord, I, I, that we should be blessed, that we should be happy. And I would be happy if only there were no poverty, if there were only no mourning, if there were no, no hunger, no persecution. Take all of those things away and we would be really happy and we would be really effective and we would be really fruitful. And Jesus says, no, 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 you aren't listening to me. You, as citizens of my kingdom, as poor mourners who hunger and thirst, who are persecuted, you are blessed. 
You are happy. You are full. God's favor is resting on you now, not in spite of your situation, but because of it. Your present situation in life is evidence of God's favor. Your life is the arena of God's work and your life and what he's doing with you and on you and for you is the way that he is bringing in his kingdom. Well, let's see how he gets to this. The last time we were together, and we studied Matthew's gospel, we saw the launch of Jesus's public ministry after John the Baptist was imprisoned. Jesus announced the good news that the kingdom of heaven was arriving. Jesus called his core apostles. He called Peter and Andrew, James and John to leave the boats, leave their nets, come be fishers of men. And then Jesus took them all around Galilee, preaching in the synagogues, healing diseases, casting out demons. And now that he's been doing this, he's amassed quite a multitude, quite a crowd of followers. So he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, and he gathers his disciples around him and begins to teach. And this body of teaching is known as the Sermon on the Mount. It goes from chapter 5 to chapter 7 of Matthew. If you have a red-letter Bible, all of the ink is red for the next several pages for chapter 5 and 6 and 7. And if you were to read this out loud, it'd probably take you about 12 minutes tops to read it all. And um, it's so dense and full, though, that it's going to take us longer than 12 minutes to get through it. I, I thought about maybe just for fun, I could just read it out loud and we could say amen and go on. Um, it, it's a, it's a, you know, as a, as a sermon, that might be fun to do, but for us to really absorb it, just because it's so highly concentrated, uh, let's camp out here for several Sundays and hear what the Lord Jesus is teaching and unpack it all. So as he begins uh, this section, as I've said many times, there are no throwaway details in scripture and Jesus doesn't waste any actions. So it's highly significant that Jesus goes up on a mountain. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus is moving from mountaintop to mountaintop. He went up to a mountain in the temptation. He goes up a mountain to teach here. He'll go up a mountain to pray. His glory is revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. He preaches about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction on the temple of the temple on the Mount of Olives. He uh, offers his sacrifice for our sins on Mount Calvary. He delivers the Great Commission from another mountain and ascends to the Father. Throughout Matthew's gospel, he's just going from one mountaintop to another. We just read a couple of weeks ago how Satan brought him up on a mountain to offer him the kingdoms of the world. Just through the shortcut of false worship, Jesus refuses that and instead goes up many other mountains, hard mountains, and through his faithfulness on all these mountains, he wins all authority in heaven and on earth because of his faithfulness on Mount Calvary. That's how he wins the kingdoms of the world. Outside of the Gospels, there are all kinds of important, significant mountains as well. Mountains are special places. They, uh, uh, it's natural to think that if we go up a mountain that we're closer to the heavens, and so that's why men try to build these false ladders to heaven, these false mountains, like, uh, like the Tower of Babel, like the pagan shrines and the pagan altars of Baal and Asherah on the high places. They try to get up there their own way, building their own ladders to heaven. It's, it's easy to assume that the mountains are where heaven and earth connect. And it is, in fact, often at mountains that God meets with man. Eden, 
the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. How do we know that? Well, there are four rivers flowing out of it. So unless water flows uphill, which it doesn't, water flows downhill, if you've got four rivers coming out of a garden, that has to be on a high place. Throughout the scriptures, various altars are built. Uh, altars to Yahweh are built on mountains, and eventually the temple is built on a mountain. All of these altars, all the, the temple, these are new Edens. These are garden sanctuaries where we meet with God. You remember Daniel and his interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar dreams about a rock that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth and it topples the empires of the world. And of course, that rock is Christ. He is the mountain that connects heaven and earth truly. He is the temple. Jesus is the temple where God dwells and meets with man. And of course, the biggest connection here is to Moses. Moses met with God on a mountain. Moses delivered God's law from a mountain. Jesus comes here to restate the covenant, to preach God's law, to call Israel to faithfulness. And so like Moses, Jesus is the greater Moses who's on a mountain delivering God's law to an Israel that he's delivering from bondage. And he brings him out here into the wilderness to come feast with him, to leave the slavery and the darkness of the bondage of sin and Satan's kingdom behind. Jesus is the greater Moses, and so it's natural for him to sit on a mountain and teach like Moses did. He sits down to teach, and Matthew is careful to tell us that. He sits down, which is how great teachers taught in the ancient world. The rabbi sat, and they taught sitting down to teach is a position of authority. Today, teachers stand and learners sit, students sit. It used to be the other way around. And if you want to get, you know, super um, ancient, we could do that in worship. I could sit, I could sit on a stool, and you all could stand. And if I were sitting down, I could probably preach another 30 minutes longer than I usually do. So that would be, you'd be extra blessing, extra glory there. That would be good. Um, no, <laughs> Jesus sits enthroned, he sits down, takes a position of authority here on a mountain over the earth to deliver his father's law to Israel, just as he's enthroned today over the whole earth. Here he takes, he takes a seat. His disciples gather around him and he begins to teach. So you have Jesus at the center, you have his apostles close by him, you have the multitudes, Israel around them, and of course the world is beyond that in concentric circles. It reminds us of the tabernacle in the wilderness. In the tabernacle, you have the presence of God, the tent of God in the middle. You have the priests and the Levites right around the tabernacle. You have Israel arranged in ranks around that. And then of course the mixed multitudes are further out still. Uh, so here, Israel and the world is camped out once again with Jesus at the center. Uh, they're camped around the living temple to hear God's law, just like they did before. All of this is new. Jesus is recasting, he's reshaping, he's reliving Israel's history, but he's doing it in a faithful way this time. When Jesus begins to teach them, he opens with a song. In your Bible, if you look at verses 3 through 10, it's probably, depending on your publisher, but almost all publishers will lay this out like a psalm. It looks like poetry in your Bible. It doesn't look like prose. It looks like poetry because it is. The, these verses have a kind of meter. There's an alliteration. There's a little rhyming sequence. There's a refrain. It starts just like it ends. For, the, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the two bookends of the song. 
Now, when we read it, it doesn't rhyme in English, but in the original language, it's obvious that this is a song. It has a lyrical quality to it. So imagine now that when Jesus first speaks to his people, this is the first sermon that we have recorded, and this is the first big body of teaching of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. We've been reading about his birth and his baptism and his temptation, but now he teaches, and the first time he speaks to his people, he breaks out in song. He sings over them. He sings to them. The bridegroom sings over his bride the way that Adam broke into song when he first sees Eve, the way that the lovers sing to each other in the Song of Solomon. And the content of this little song is uplifting, it is full of peace, it is full of blessing and encouragement. He has some very tough things to say later on in this sermon, but he begins in blessing. Nobody can read the Sermon on the Mount, really read it, genuinely read it, and come away without their ears burning. You read the Sermon on the Mount, and you are left with a great sense of conviction. It is full of admonishments and corrections, but that's not where Jesus starts. Jesus begins in blessing by telling us who we are, confirming our relationship to God the Father, grounding us and establishing us in our identity in Him. It's how Paul begins 1 Corinthians, you know, you know the church at Corinth, they had a few problems, right? And Paul doesn't start the book, his letter to the Corinthians, he doesn't start that with like, okay, listen up, you you knuckleheads. Come on, listen up, you bunch of losers. That's not how he begins this letter to the Corinthians. How does he begin it? I'm gonna read it. Uh, Paul, to the Corinthians, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He he opens, his opening is to establish the peace that they have with God and, and the Father through the Spirit. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how he begins. That's how he starts. And then he says, now I plead with you, brethren, that you all speak the same thing. Paul opens by singing over them. He sings over them. He rejoices in the gospel and in the faithfulness of God to them and through them. And then he straightens them out. Then he corrects them. Jesus does this again in the letters to the seven churches at the start of Revelation. He tells the church at Ephesus, he says, repent, or else I'm going to come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. But that's not how he opens. How does he open? How does he first speak to the church at Ephesus? He says, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have persevered. You have patience. You have labored for my name's sake, and you have not become weary. Before he corrects, 
He showers them with his love and his good favor. He says, I am thankful for you. I am proud of you. I love you. I count it a blessing to call you mine. He reminds them of his good pleasure in them. This is just a really great practical habit. This is a good thing to imitate. It is very difficult to effectively correct your children if you haven't been singing over them, if you haven't been continually affirming and confirming and grounding them in your love for them and in God's love for them and in the covenant and in the covenant promises, continually reminding them of who they are in Christ and confirming in them God's expectations and the, and the, and the requirements of the covenant lovingly by singing over them. And then you correct, then you admonish, then you discipline in the context of treating them as sons and daughters in covenant. Bringing up hard subjects with your wife is very, very difficult. It's more difficult if you haven't been singing over your wife and singing over your husband. If you ever tried to correct somebody and they say, who are you? What do you think you're coming to me with this? What, what, do, you, what do you mean? I don't, I don't know you. Uh, it's because you haven't invested in them. You haven't given them anything to bank on. Now, I'm not talking about flattery. The book of Proverbs has a lot of prohibitions about the folly of flattery. I'm not talking about flattery. I'm not talking about manipulation. There is a way to butter somebody up and put a fish hook in it so that you can give them all these flowery words and hook them and really snag them and you know, get, your, uh, get your digs in. That's not what I'm talking about. What Jesus does, what Paul does is express genuine gratitude and joy for who we are in Christ. He builds us up and then now he, he has this, he's got our ear, he's got our love, he's got our attention. And now he has this ability to correct and teach. And that's how he starts. So Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount by singing a blessing over his people. We call these little verses, these little sayings, Beatitudes. This section is called the Beatitudes, and that's just another way of saying these are blessings. They all begin with the word blessed. Blessing is one of those common Christian words that we, all, we need to stop and define. We use the word blessing or bless. Uh, we, we use phrases like God bless you or bless your heart or bless her heart, which means something different than bless, bless your heart. We, we get a raise or we have a good day with the family and we might tweet hashtag blessed. Uh, what does that mean though? Is, is blessing just a good thing that happens to us or is blessing a good feeling about a good thing? Well, the word blessed at the beginning of every verse here is one of those Greek words that doesn't easily or directly translate into English. So you have to pull a lot of words together to get at the full meaning. This word also means happy. It means great, it means prosperous, it means full or rich or wealthy. To be blessed in this sense is to be fully satisfied. It is to have all of your needs filled up to the top, to be the recipient of God's good favor and to rejoice in God's good favor regardless of the circumstances. This blessedness that Jesus talks about is a state of being like Adam was created in a state of blessing. Adam was created full, complete, perfect. He had everything that he needed, like the blessed man in Psalm 1. 
uh, which we sing. The blessed man is a green, fruitful, prosperous tree planted beside the waters. He lacks nothing. He has everything he needs. Like the blessed wife of Psalm 128 that we read and sang about this morning. She is a fruitful vine. Blessedness is flourishing. It is an abundance. It's an unshakable satisfaction in all that God has and has done for us. So happy may be a good synonym for us to insert whenever we see the word blessed. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Because happiness seems to be the one thing that we all crave and yet seems so elusive to us. If you ask somebody, how are you doing? They'll normally say, oh, great, we're good, we're doing fine. And, and that's an easy response. If you, if you say, are you blessed? Sure, I'm blessed. I mean, the car started this morning, I've got food in the refrigerator. Yeah, I'm blessed. But if you ask somebody, are you happy? That'll catch them off guard. Are you happy? They'll cut their eyes to the side and say, oh boy, happy? <laughs> I think so. Sometimes I'm happy. And yet what's so striking is the way that Jesus boldly uses this word to describe his people. It's just a statement of fact. It's just an assertion, a proclamation without qualifications. If you are in my kingdom, you are happy. You are full. You are prosperous. You have everything you need because my kingdom is rushing in and nobody is stopping it. It is sweeping you up in it. You are happy. It's not just a game of positive thinking. You are objectively full. 2 Peter 1.3 says you have everything. Because of his godliness, his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have all things that you need to live an effective and fruitful life pleasing to God. God has withheld nothing from you. You are rich. You are full. Notice that Jesus does not say, try real hard and act like you're blessed. Make an effort to act like you're happy in spite of your situation. Act like you're blessed. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, if you aren't poor in spirit, you ought to try to be. He doesn't say, if you don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, you should start. These aren't directives. These aren't imperatives. These are declarations. This is how it is. He's announcing good news here. He's not announcing good advice. This is the proclamation of how the living God is beginning to turn the world upside down and to demonstrate what he values over what is despised by the world. All of these things that the Lord Jesus says are happy, are full, are rich, all of these aspects of the people who make up his kingdom are all despised by the world. Nobody wants to be poor. Nobody wants to mourn. No one, no one embraces persecution. Um, all of those things are despised by the world. And yet, in the kingdom of heaven, these are all markers. These are all indicators of happiness. Let's figure out how this works. The first and the last beatitude talk about the way things are presently. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the last one says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that? There are and is. This is present. This is how things are. You have and are possessing the kingdom of heaven. The others say, the other six say, this is how you are. This is what you shall be. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You are happy, satisfied, enriched because there are aspects of the kingdom that you are enjoying right now and there are those aspects of the kingdom that are coming in more and more fully in time. Either way, you are happy and being more and more blessed and happier. Let's take a minute or two just on each, each blessing, each beatitude. Um, the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Not just impoverished uh, financially or materially. You may be but to be poor in spirit is to be shed of the entanglements of the world, such that the health of my spirit is not wrapped up in my wealth, is not wrapped up in my possessions or my circumstances. In fact, if I'm stripped of my stuff or my money or my influence or my status or my career, if I'm stripped of these things, I'm not gonna fall apart. Nor can you tempt me to stop trusting God by taking these things away from me because those things are not the substance of my life. If God takes it all away, I will still praise him. A poverty of spirit means that your happiness is not dependent upon all the things that the people of this present age are consumed with, all the things that define them. It's just not, those things are just not that attractive for those who are poor in spirit. Just as Jesus emptied himself to take on the form of a slave in order to win the world. So the poor in spirit have likewise emptied themselves of every lust, of every attraction, of everything that consumes them, empties themselves, and thus inherit the kingdom of heaven. To paraphrase Jim Elliot, the poor in spirit have let go of those things they cannot keep to gain that which cannot be taken away. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus doesn't expect that his people won't mourn. He doesn't expect us to respond to hardship, pain, suffering, loss, persecution, like a stoic block of wood. He doesn't expect us to respond like stone. No, his people do weep. They will cry when things hurt them, but they do not weep alone. They are comforted. Their cries are heard by God. Psalm 34 says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears. They do not mourn as empty, but they mourn as full. The sun always breaks through the cloud. The light shines through the tears and the sorrow, the light of eternity and of the kingdom. Third one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who gets to inherit the earth? Who gets to run things? To whom do the thrones and dominions and powers go? Not those who grasp for them greedily, not those who live their lives clawing their way into power and authority. That's not who inherits the earth, but those who, like Jesus, are meek. Meek doesn't mean weak, even though they rhyme. Meek doesn't mean mild, even though for some reason those two things always go together, meek and mild. When you think of meek, you might think of a passive guy who's kind of a joke, who's easily fooled, um, but that's not it. Meekness is self-control. Meekness is gentle firmness. Meekness is knowing when to be tough and when to temper that toughness. Meekness is strength under discipline. Moses was called the meekest man on the face of the earth. David is described as being meek, and neither of them were soft, passive men. Uh, they were men who learned how uh, to control themselves. 
If you learn how to control your life and your tongue, you get to rule the world. The man who can't discipline himself gets to rule over nothing. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they inherit the earth. Next, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We are born hungry and thirsty, and we never stop hungering and thirsting. We are hungry our, our whole lives. We never get tired of food or water. Jesus talks about people who are hungry and thirsty for more than food and water, who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They desire peace and justice and equity as defined in the Bible, as defined biblically according to God's law, they desperately want the world to run the way that heaven runs and such that only pure and good and beautiful, lovely, praiseworthy things will satisfy them. And Jesus says they will be filled. That's a promise. They aren't left empty. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The Pharisees and the scribes, who Jesus is always contrasting against, they weren't merciful. They devoured widows' houses. Uh, they perverted justice. They, they viewed the helpless and the suffering as prey. Uh, but the merciful know that they have been forgiven by God. They know how richly they have been blessed and they look for opportunities to lavish that mercy on others. And Jesus says to the merciful, you will receive more mercy in the future. The Lord will continue to deal with you mercifully. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Those who followed the Pharisees were obsessed with outward cleansing, going beyond the law, above the ceremonial law and in washings. And Jesus called them hypocrites because they clean the outside of the cup but their insides were filthy with extortion and self-indulgence. Jesus is concerned about purity in the heart, purity in the inward parts that works itself out to the whole body. Like David sings in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If you want to see God, you must have been cleansed. You must be purified in your heart. The next one, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Not just the peaceful, not just those who avoid conflict, uh, but, but, but those who go out of their way to make peace between men who go out of their way to make peace between God and men, bringing men into reconciliation with the Lord and bringing men into reconciliation with each other. Those who make peace happen by deliberately working toward peace. Kingdom people seek to share the peace accomplished by the cross of Jesus with every man. And they're called the sons of God because they're like Jesus. They're like they're like God himself. And then the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he adds this further encouragement. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The world is threatened by people who live the life that the Beatitudes describe. The worldly are threatened when you don't buy into their system of, of fitting in and when you don't value their status. They're threatened by people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It shows them up. It convicts them of their sin. It shines a light on their own fakery and their recourse to that is to behave like sons of Cain. They act like Cain. They're jealous and they persecute you in their rage. And Jesus says, it's going to happen. It happened to him. Uh, they, they were uh, unrighteous. They, were, they acted in unjust ways toward him. He didn't do anything to deserve it. And because you look like Jesus, they will do mean things to you too. They will persecute you. And when that happens, 
you really know you're doing kingdom work and you're promoting the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know that we just flew through these and this, this would be so much easier if all I had to do is say, you aren't mourning enough, you need to go mourn some more. You aren't hungering after righteousness enough, do better. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. This is not, uh, again, this is not, these are not a list of imperatives. This is a description of the people who are united to Jesus, who are already the subjects of his kingdom. Jesus declares, these are my people. These are the blessed people. These are the happy people. And when you read through this list, every one of them is a description of Jesus. Jesus became poor in spirit, emptying himself in the incarnation. Jesus mourned. Jesus was meek. He was a strong man under discipline, under restraint. Jesus hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Jesus was merciful. He was pure in heart. He was a peacemaker. Jesus was persecuted for righteousness' sake. And he received all the rewards of all of these things. He inherited the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth. He was comforted. He was filled. He obtained mercy. He saw the face of his father. He is called the son of God. And Jesus is the blessed one. He is the happy one. He is the one who is full. He is in a, in a state of complete satisfaction. And we are in him. By faith, we are in union with him. And so what the Beatitudes teach is that your happiness rests in the supreme providence of God. Your full equipping for all that pertains to life and godliness is not dependent upon or contingent upon you living in a time without trouble. Your happiness is not contingent upon you living in a time without mourning or hunger or danger. You would not be more blessed if you lived in a different time. You would not be more blessed if you had a do-over if you had a chance to start again or to go back 20 years. Your happiness rests in one factor. You are in Christ. Your blessedness rests in this alone. You are in Christ. In every way, then, these are the good days. These, the days right now, the days that we're living in, these are the happy days. These are the days lavished with God's mercies. These are not the days of drudgery and malaise and doldrums. We're not waiting for some good thing to happen so that now we can really be faithful and effective. We're not waiting for something else to happen so now we can live a life of, of blessedness and peace. No, 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 no. Jesus comes in the first century and he says, you're blessed right now. You're part of my kingdom, even if, and especially because you're poor in spirit and because you hunger and thirst after righteousness, because you mourn, you recognize that everything's out of joint in the world, but in the kingdom, things are made right. You are happy now. You are blessed. This perspective is such a huge contrast to the way that the world of unbelief lives. They are miserable. They are racked with anxiety and guilt. They are exhausted by efforts to keep up the appearances of success and health and happiness but at the core, they're hopeless and sad. And sometimes it seems like there are all these factions in the world just trying to out-miserable each other. How can we be more miserable than everybody else? Your warfare on the misery mongers is deep laughter. 
deep satisfaction in who God is and what he has done for you, which comes out in feasting and worshiping and rejoicing and beaming the light of the church out of Zion, the joy and the happiness and the festivity of the kingdom out of here. Because every time you grumble, every time you murmur, every time you gripe, you are saying, my king isn't good enough. The kingdom I'm part of just doesn't cut it. My, my king hasn't provided for me. My king doesn't make me happy. My king isn't blessed. No, those are all lies. Because Jesus is our king, we lack nothing. We are contented. We are uh, showered in mercy. Our souls are at rest and we are satisfied and we are full in Jesus, we are blessed. Keep speaking this truth to yourself and to each other because if you don't, you begin to devour each other and you begin to devour yourselves. We get into these little cycles of anxiety where we're picking everything apart, we're picking everything apart, and we're picking each other apart because we cannot remember that we are blessed and we are happy in Jesus. Rejoice in your Savior and in who you are in Him. There is a time for correction. There's a time for admonishment, but even that comes to you in the context of your being a son. You are a daughter. You're not a stranger. You're in him. And so, brothers and sisters, we are awash in the indescribable blessings of our God. Be happy. Be blessed. We are nourished, and we are refreshed, and we are the flourishing, fruitful people of the kingdom. And so Jesus doesn't even make a qualification. He just says it. You are blessed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the kingdom. Father, enrich us with your spirit and strengthen us so that we can live fully knowing these great abundant blessings that you have showered us with. We ask you to remind us of this every day. In Jesus' name, amen.